I see time is short. I expect uh, both physically here and in the world. Someone asked me today, by the way, if uh, we were afraid of terrorism and going to South Africa for the feast. And I said I give it not a second thought. Satan does try to hinder us and will, but Paul said pray about that and don't worry about it. Uh, Africa may be in chaos, but God is not. And uh, from now on, we're going to see a great deal of the tail wagging the dog throughout the world until Christ takes hold of the head of the dog, and then you ain't seen nothing yet <clears throat> because his anger is going to be fiercer than Satan's. But Christ is standing by watching the tail wagging at the moment, and he has everything under control. Now, there is some confusion over what I believe about a place of safety and perhaps gathering together for such an event. And I wanted to talk about that a little bit and clear it up, hopefully, before getting into the sermon per se. I got an email um, this week, in fact, that asked me if I thought Colorado was a place of safety. And uh, I had to write back and disappoint them and say, no, uh, I have no idea that any such thing is in the offing. On the other hand, I'd prefer it to Petra if that were the case. <laughs> Petra is a lot of rocks and a lot of sand, but uh, I have no idea that it would be there or that it would be in Liberty, Mississippi, in Palestine, Texas, in Salem, Missouri, or Salem, Oregon, or Carmel-by-the-Sea, California, uh, or Craig, that is Big Rock, Colorado. Uh, that is, as far as I know, God's secret. And he says that he will hide us in his secret place and a place that he prepares for us. So I want to declare that I do not believe, contrary to rumor, that the place of safety is in Colorado. Nor do I believe that God is going to gather the whole church internationally together in one spot, wherever that spot might be, before taking the church to a place of safety. I have never pictured or imagined that. It would take miracles on the order of actually taking the church to a place of safety to bring everyone from the Philippines and Australia and Britain and all over the U.S. and wherever else God's people are scattered to do so because of laws, because of immigration. Uh, it would take absolute miracles from God to do such a thing. And I don't see anything in the Bible that requires that. <clears throat> Clues in the Bible indicate that maybe Petra is a place of safety, but that may only be a symbol. Time will tell. God's people have been protected in Sinai. They were protected in Pella. They were protected when they left uh, Jerusalem and Israel in Asia and in Northwest Europe. They were protected in England. God's people have been protected wherever they have been throughout the ages. Uh, when they were under persecution, they fled to the mountains of Europe. When they were under persecution in England and in Northwest Europe at the beginning of this country, they fled to Rhode Island and other places in the United States. What we need to understand is that Christ is the rock, and he knows which pile of rocks he is going to take the church to. But I have no idea that it is in Colorado. So I wanted to put that to rest and put to rest also the rumor that I feel that the whole church has to gather together in one place. I do not believe that, nor do I find it in the scriptures as such. 
Uh, I find there that the church is to be gathered together spiritually, certainly. Uh, there's no question in my mind about that, and I think we'll see that before we get through with this series, and it can be explained quite clearly. I want you to know and understand, brethren, that I don't know it all about the prophecies of the future. I don't claim to. I am struggling to apply uh, the scriptures to us, to the church, to take it personally, whatever part of the Bible it is. And it is somewhat new for us to apply directly the prophecies of the Old Testament to the church. But we have come to understand very clearly what Herbert Armstrong said decades ago, that the Bible is written to the church, and that the Old Testament is written to the church, that we are spiritual Israel, that we are spiritual Zion and Jerusalem, and Judah and Ephraim, and so on and so forth, and that these principles do apply. Now, we have begun to apply them to the church directly, but it's not something Daryl Henson has done. You, yourself, did the very same thing. When you began to recognize there were problems between uh, God and the ministry, between the ministry and the people, between the ministry and the ministry, you began yourselves to go back to Ezekiel 34, Jeremiah 23, Malachi 1, and say, this is what has happened to the church. And you did that a long time before I ever got onto this subject. And it's partly what brought you out of worldwide, because you read in Jude about how the ministry was falling apart and what was wrong with it. And then you went back to these in the Old Testament and brought the, the same thing forward and understood it as talking about the Church of God ministry, not the Methodist, not the Baptist, not the Church of Christ, except in principle, because the ministry of this world is also wrong and falling apart. But we had to see, once it began to happen in the Church of God, that those things were not happening just in the world, but that those scriptures also applied to the Church. And I had to apply them to me. You have to apply them to you. So, as we struggle to comprehend the message God has in these Old Testament prophecies for the Church today, if you disagree with something I say, because I'm struggling to understand it myself, how does this apply to us? And I might understand one thing this month, and I might see it in a clearly, totally different light next month, because, oh, that's what that means. And the lights come on, and maybe I was looking at it wrong. But we're struggling to understand, because we are in trouble as a greater church of God. But if you feel you can shed more light on it, Please don't fear my reaction. I don't know it all. I don't understand it all. I'm struggling too. If you feel you can shed light on it, um, I have an email address. I have a telephone. There's a U.S. Post Office service. Uh, there are personal visits. Please help me understand. Help me grasp. If I say something, you say, oh, yeah, but that means this also, or that means this instead. I want to hear about it. Now, as we're going to see once we get into the sermon, we're here to build a relationship. We're here to be able to communicate back and forth freely. Now, I understand from what people have told me that some of the things I say are sometimes controversial. Now, that doesn't come as a surprise to some of you. 
But when you're struggling to understand something that is somewhat new in application, there are going to be things that have to be studied through, thought through, and sometimes they'll be approached wrongly, and I'm quite capable of that. So I want you, as brethren in God's church, to understand that, and that I don't think I know it all by any means. And in fact, I think it is a great presumption to think that I would think, I mean, it's a presumption if I were to think, that I would move to Colorado and that that's where everybody's supposed to gather. Now, come on. I don't feel that way. I feel, in my own mind and heart, to be the lowest of Christians, and certainly the lowest in the ministry. That's the way I feel. Because I struggle absolutely every day, every moment of the waking hours that I have to bring my attitudes in subjection to Christ, to bring every thought into subjection to Christ, to come out of Babylon and my thinking, my emotions, my reactions. And it's not easy to do. But if we don't understand that it is a moment-to-moment fight for every last one of us, to come to think and be like God, then we don't even understand what Christianity is all about. So I want to openly and totally apologize for any misleading statements I've made or any thoughts that uh, might have led you to think that I was thinking a certain way when that isn't really what I'm thinking. And I want to say it openly and totally, and I really mean that sincerely. I heard a man give a speech recently where he sort of admitted but did not really come out and apologize to the American people. Not openly, not totally, but very covertly and barely. And I don't want your relationship and mine to be that way. Understand, I don't feel like I know it all by any means. I'm struggling to survive right now spiritually in a very, very darkened world and a very darkened church. I'm not speaking specifically of the church of the great God, but the whole church everywhere is in deep and desperate trouble. Now maybe some of the confusion that has resulted has been part of lack, partly lack of definition, because there is another somewhat separate problem, but which has some bearing on us right now, and John gave two or three sermons recently on the subject, and that is where we are in this world today. We're facing Y2K, the state of Colorado, I saw on the news just recently, unless I only heard part of it or didn't hear it right, uh, just recently said that by the end of this month, they plan to have a 10-person panel picked out to begin to study and assess the Y2K problem. (laughs) Now, when you get ten minds together to begin to assess, how long does it take them to assess something? Probably months. And then it has to go to the Colorado legislature for funding and approval. And you know how politicians can argue. That could take months. The upshot of it is the state of Colorado government probably will not be anywhere near ready by the time January 1st, 2000 comes. So we have that specter before us, unmovable unless it moves closer. We have a stock market going wild and sure to crash someday, as we've all known. 
We have cloning as something that I feel is completely diametrically opposed to God's plan. We have abortion. They just recently appointed a professor to Princeton University, one of our uh, most esteemed colleges in this country. He's a department head now. And he is advocating, teaching, stressing, actively campaigning for a one-month probation period for children born to see if they should live or not. We're not talking abortion in the first trimester. We're talking about giving them a month to see if you like them, to see if you think they're retarded, to see if they're defective in some way, and if you think that they are not, and that they can medically prove that this child is not a um, good candidate for citizenship in the world, that that child at one month can be terminated. Now that sends chills up and down my spine. That's where we are today in our most esteemed universities. We have spreading famine and pestilence in the world. It hasn't reached here much, but it's spreading in the world. We have failing government and politicians right now. We have the specter of the beast arising. See, the question is not if, but how much we as Christians will go through before God takes us out of this. We're already in it. It's just a matter of how deep. Remember the plagues of Egypt? And how Israel went through the first few plagues? Why? Why didn't God just take them out? I can think of several possible reasons. One, they were fairly comfortable in Egypt. They had homes and cows. And they had been treated up until recently or just before uh, they were taken out fairly well by the Egyptians. They were given nice land and the land of Goshen, they hadn't started out as slaves in Egypt, but Egypt over a period of time did enslave them. And just as Moses was being prepared to deliver them, they began to have to make more bricks, and they began to get beatings, and that, by that, God could begin to stir them up to realize they needed out of there. Otherwise, they might not even go. And here's the critical point. They had to fear God more than they feared the Egyptians. And when God unleashed those plagues on both Egypt and Israel, there had to be a certain level of trust established that God would not kill them too, but at the same time there had to be enough fear established that they would move, do something when God spoke, that they would be responsive. How much are we responsive? How much will we go through? Now I bring that up in terms of these problems and all aspects of society that is crumbling about our ears. They've also, we've also got the specter of terrorism that I forgot to mention. There's so many, many triggers that could start all this thing rolling down the hill. They want to kill half a million to a million Americans with anthrax, it's saying. And now that we've attacked Sudan and Afghanistan, the terrorists are even more serious in retaliating. So these are very real problems. These are not something that are going to happen in the future. We're already there. <clears throat> now, this 
to depart from gathering to go to a place of safety or going to a place of safety. We are a spiritual organism, as John said last week. But we cannot get away from the fact that part of the test of our spiritual condition is how we handle physical things and people. We'll see that clearly as we go. What about the drought in Jerusalem? Paul sent fruit, didn't he? Well, his main function was to be a spiritual leader and provide spiritual food. But when the people began to be hungry and perhaps starved to death, Paul reacted in a physical way and sent physical figs and dried grapes or whatever all he sent, fruit to Jerusalem for the saints and asked them to be gathered by the people and sent there. There came a point where they physically pooled their resources. Now spiritually, we're to be pooling our resources and fellowshipping together and not forsaking that as the time draws near. But they also pooled their dollars because some were hungry and some were not. And everyone but Ananias and Sapphira apparently reacted properly. Maybe there were others that didn't as well, I do not know. But their example was made very plain. Now will it get to the point we have to do that? I'm not advocating communism or communism as such, but there is an example in the Bible when God's people put everything they had together so that they all might survive. It was not a form of government or a normal way to live, but it was a temporary emergency situation. And as John said, the prudent man hides himself, and we look to the ant and lay up for the troublous times ahead. It only makes sense if you know this thing is not only coming, but it is already in some degree upon us. Did God send Joseph a dream and tell him, save up seven fat years for the lean years to come? I think that's an example for us. But we are to be prepared as much as possible physically. Now that has a pales by comparison to spiritual Preparedness, that is the main thing. But at the same time, how we use physical things is the barometer of our own spiritual condition. And I'm not talking here about a survivalist mentality where you have uh, stacks of beans and rice and, and a machine gun over the top of it. I'm talking about simply seeing the trouble that is coming and realizing that we may go through part of it and that we need to be prepared to do so. Now, if some don't prepare, and I do, and they come to me, I'm not going to say, uh, well, too bad you didn't save any food. I've got plenty. See ya. Be warmed and filled. See, that doesn't build a relationship. The relationship is built by opening the door and saying, yeah, here's what I have. Share it. Or maybe my neighbor in the world. Am I supposed to turn away from him because I saw something coming and laid in some food and suddenly he's starving to death and he comes and knocks on my door? Am I going to turn him away? No, I'm not going to shoot him and shoot him for knocking on my door. That is a survivalist mentality. But we need to understand that these things are coming, that we're already in them. It's just like it shocked me when that Princeton professor said that your babies when they're a month old. What have we come to? Maybe I have not defined the difference enough between the problems in society and our physical preparation for them as opposed to the spiritual preparation 
and, uh, and it's got blurred between that and the distinction of a place of safety and gathering and so on. But again, I apologize if I've confused you. I will try to get unconfused myself, and I will try to confuse you less in the future. Now, I introduced Hosea <coughs> last time I spoke and began to compare the Polish wife of Hosea with the current church mess, and I sort of got into that just a little bit and just dropped you there. Maybe that was a little bit uh, disconcerting, but I ran out of time, and uh, I, there was no encouragement there, certainly, but just a, a comparison that was made and dropped. <clears throat> now, is this a valid comparison? Should we view ourselves in the church as being like Hosea's Horish wife? Now let's first look at an overview of the Bible itself. The Old Testament, beginning with the law, explains relationships. That's what the Ten Commandments are all about, is explaining relationships. Relationship between, uh, uh, from God to man, the relationship of man to God, and in the last six there, the relationship of man to man. And the whole law, all the books of the law in the Old Testament, had to do with explaining those relationships. The laws were built and designed so that the relationship could be correct. If we keep all those laws, all those statutes, judgments of God, then our relationship with God and man is going to be right, isn't it? That's what it's all laid out for. Now next in line, behind the law, come the prophets. If you check the Masoretic text or the inspired order, you will find the law first, then the prophets, then the writings. Now your regular King James uh, 1611 version has that order mixed up, but the Jews apparently have it right, and I think we'll see that they probably are right before we're done here. Now, what are the prophets for? They explain the whys, the wherefores, and the solutions to relationships gone bad. If God uses the whole law to explain what it ought to be, and then man fails. A man has generally always failed to one degree or another, and usually to a greater degree. Therefore, God sent the prophets to tell them why they were going to be punished, what they needed to do, how they could, pre how they could repair the relationship. We're going to see this is the main purpose of the prophets. It isn't to try to figure out in Daniel when Christ is coming back or just who the beast is. That is not the main overall purpose. In fact, Daniel isn't even included in the prophets, even though he was a prophet. He's included in the writings. But the main emphasis of Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and the minor prophets is this is what has gone wrong with your relationship with God. It's a spiritual problem. The New Testament is merely an expansion of the same thing. Let's pick that up using the Sermon on the Mount as the prime example. What does Christ start into in Matthew 5 when he starts into the Sermon on the Mount? He's talking about attitudes, he's talking about relationships, about making peace with each other and with God, about being merciful to one another, 
forgiving and kind. Uh, we all want everybody else to forgive all of our offenses and our sins. We don't want them to talk about us. But why are we willing to talk about them? See, we only get half the relationship right there. He goes right on down about those being persecuted for righteousness' sake. He talks about the law very highly and about how not one part of it is to be done away because it explains and defines the relationship with God. He talks about not serving two masters but serving God in heaven. See, that has to do with the relationship between God and man. Now let's go and see this nailed down absolutely specifically in Matthew 7 and verse 12. Therefore, all things whatsoever you would that men should do to you, do you even so to them. Now here is the relationship between man and man clearly laid out by Jesus Christ himself. And he explains this one great overall principle. Whatever you want done to you, you do to each other. Easy to say, hard to accomplish. For this is the law and the prophets. That's what the law and the prophets are all about. It's explaining what the relationship is to be between person and person. And then what went wrong? What needs to be done? So you see, the law and the prophets are absolutely linked together here in this one principle by Jesus Christ himself in this initial ground-laying sermon of the New Testament. And he's talking to New Testament disciples who are going to become New Testament apostles very shortly thereafter. And this is what he tells them. The relationship between the law and you among each other is what the law and the prophets are. That's, that's what defines them. That's their purpose. Now let's go to Matthew 22. Matthew 22. And beginning down in verse 36. Matthew 22, 36. Master, which is the great commandment in the law? Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. Now what do you see echoed in the prophecies? God says, I will lift the trouble from you when you turn to me with all your heart. Jesus is drawing on what the prophets said, what he told them to say in the Old Testament. This is the first and great commandment, and the second is likened to it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So the relationship between God and man, and the relationship between man and man, and these two gigantic principles is laid out again. Now notice what he says. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets, inexorably linked together by Jesus Christ is the solution to man's problems. There again, the law to tell us about our relationship with God and man and the prophets to tell us what to do when something goes wrong. Back 
That is why the New Testament writers continually refer back to the law and the prophets. That's why much of the New Testament is quotes from, either directly or paraphrased from the Old Testament. Do you think God didn't understand the spirit of the law when he gave the law originally? He talked about heart back then. What about the Tenth Commandment itself? Thou shalt not covet. Now you can physically go out and break the Sabbath. You can physically lie to someone. You can physically commit adultery. How do you physically covet? It's all in the mind. It's all in, in the intent. It's all in the attitude. The Tenth Commandment is basically a spiritual principle. Nothing new. What did Christ get into in Matthew 5, 6, and 7? He explained the Tenth Commandment. Thou shalt not covet. You shall not even look on a woman to lust after her. That's coveting. Yes, he expanded it. He explained it a great deal more. But he gives essentially equal weight to the law and the prophets linked together. Now, the rest of the New Testament is an expansion of the theme that Christ laid out in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, is it not? Most of the rest of the New Testament is about relationships. How to handle food and drink, drunkenness and gluttony, the proper keeping of Passover so that some are not left out and others get drunk and, uh, and eat and so on and so forth. He said, eat at home, come to the Passover for a different reason. It's about sex relationships. It's about marriage relationships. It's about clothing and how to dress modestly so that we don't try to stand out and be better looking than everyone else, but that we are to dress modestly. See, that has to do with our relationship with each other. It has a great deal in the New Testament about relationship between the ministry and the ministry, between the ministry and the laity, between the ministry and God. Chapter after chapter, Paul expounded on that, Timothy to Titus, to various ones. It's about the tongue. James used quite a little ink to talk about the tongue, the relationship between man and man, and murmuring before God. It's about child rearing. Hebrews 12 and many other places. It's about don't feed those who won't work. You don't work, you can't, shall not eat. For a man not to work, we are commanded just as much not to feed him as he is to work. Now you can apply that spiritually. Don't cast the pearls before swine. Don't feed people the spiritual things if they despise them. And at the same time, it's a physical application. It has to do with our relationship to God and to man. It isn't good for that person to be fed when he won't work physically. That's what Paul was talking about. The New Testament is full of instruction about the care of the widow and the orphan and what the relationship to them should be. And constantly, of course, the relationship between man and God. All of the New Testament writers expound upon that, and that is the main force and the main thrust of the New Testament. It's just the Old Testament repeated, basically, expanded upon, and principles applied to the New Testament church, but it's the same laws, and it's the same relationship problems that ancient Israel had in the Old Testament. 
The New Testament does not lay a lot of these things out in detail. Christ himself gives very sketchy, at least in terms of space, not in terms of power, clarity, or force, but in terms of space, he does not devote a great deal to the attitude of the Pharisees, or people relationships uh, there, in terms of the church coming apart. Now he says not one stone will be laid upon another, or left upon another in the temple, and shortly thereafter, Jerusalem was destroyed and so was the temple. But he doesn't go into great detail about that. And when the church fled from Jerusalem to Pella, you don't see that in the pages of the New Testament. We read that in profane history. Well, now, why didn't Christ lay all that out and have the writers of the New Testament lay it all out and how the destruction of Jerusalem would come? Simply because it had all been laid out in the Old Testament. The destruction of the temple back there and all the details about it and how the temple would be rebuilt by Ezra and Nehemiah and in later times by Joshua and Zerubbabel, the two, the two witnesses at the end, and other eras of the church. Why was, it not Why was it not necessary to describe in detail what would happen to the early New Testament church in the same way that ancient Israel was destroyed? It's easy. There's nothing new under the sun. Human nature does not change. What has been will be. We repeat the same negative cycles over and over and over. It's been the case with Israel from the very beginning, the inception of Israel as a nation, and it is true today. It is true today of physical Israel, which we see in complete harlotry and abomination turned from God in every way, and in the church, as we see we turned Laodicean, and so on. Now let's see this very clearly. It's a principle you all know, and it's a memory verse in 1 Corinthians 10. Paul nails this down. He starts talking about ancient Israel in chapter 10 of 1 Corinthians. Verse 5, well, he talks about the spiritual drink. They drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. So Christ was there. Christ was the husband. But they were overthrown in the wilderness because God was not well pleased with them. Now these things were our examples. To the intent we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted, neither be idolaters as were some of them. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Neither let us commit fornication as some of them committed and fell in one day 23,000. Neither let us tempt Christ as some of them also tempted and were destroyed of serpents. Don't murmur and complain as some of them also murmured and were destroyed of destroyer. Now all these things happened to them for examples and they are written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the world are come. If that was true in Paul's day, it is even truer today because we are nearer the end of the age than he was then. So what I'm saying is, those things were written for examples for you and for me. Now the prophets laid all these things out in absolute detail. They showed the relationship problem between Christ and Israel, his wife, and how he divorced her, how he is going to make a new covenant with people later, 
and also what would happen then because the prophets go clear through into the end of this age, the latter days, into the millennium, and the full final fulfillment of all of God's plans. So it's all laid out there, and it does show the relationships, problems, God's reactions, and our responsibilities. Today, we are facing grim reality, brethren. The church is falling apart. And it seems that it is falling apart faster and faster and faster. Now, as hard as it is to comprehend this, I do not believe that 90% of the church even realizes what is happening. They realize the scattering. They realize the falling apart, the disunity and the disharmony. But I would bet 70 to 90%, and probably closer to 90, do not understand why. Some are beginning to say it here and there. They're beginning to realize God is doing this to us. We are Laodiceans. We're in the Laodicean era. The prophecies lay it all out for us. They told us what would happen. They told us what would happen to the ministry in Jeremiah 23 and Ezekiel 34 and Malachi 1. Those things were just simply repeated in 1 Thessalonians 2 and various other in Jude and various other places in the New Testament. The apostles drew on the things those prophets wrote and said the same thing is happening now. Because in their day there was a great falling away. So here we are at the end of the age and we find another great falling away from the truth. A great falling away from God and the church and from each other. And we're in the grim middle of it. Now we can go to Revelation 3, and I will do that here, Revelation 3, and we get part of the story here. There was a very good sermon I thought given by, uh, oh, now his mind slipped my mind, uh, his name slipped my mind uh, in global, about uh, Moses and Elijah and the, the two witnesses, Harold Smith. I thought gave a very comprehensive sermon on that subject, showing that the lamp, the light from Philadelphia has gone out. Philadelphia apparently does not really exist anymore because they are consecutive. The errors are. Now, all the attitudes of all seven churches are here. And I am a microcosm of the problems of all the seven churches, as are you. So all of attitudes are still here to varying degrees in each and every one of us to one degree or another. Because they're human problems. They're spiritual problems. So we have them. But I also believe that even those, those seven attitudes and those seven churches in that sense may exist today, that they also have been consecutive through the ages, as Herbert Armstrong understood, and that he was the head of and the light of, essentially, the Philadelphia era. But that light has gone out. It was a fairly powerful light. Now, the light of the Laodicean church is pretty weak. But that's where we are today. We're in the middle of Laodicea. We're being spewed out, as it says here in Revelation 3. And it's a very dim light, indeed, to the world. It's a confusing light to the world. They can't understand what's going on with Worldwide Church of God and its sisters, daughters. And they ridicule it. Because the light of Laodicea is very dim and weak. 
and it will go out soon. Then the only light left will be the light, the lamp of the two witnesses. That's the only place there will be the Spirit of God and the light in the world. The church will go to a place of safety that is the faithful. So let's read this. Revelation 3, verse 14. To the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things, says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God, I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I would you were cold or hot. So then, because you were lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew you out of my mouth. Particles of sputum is what we are. Because you say, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing and know not, but you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. We said, the church, the church, the horns of the altar. We're in the church. We must be okay. We're all going to a place of safety. I prayed about it and asked God to account me worthy, and he has, and I'm gone. was the attitude of the church. Now, was that true? Well, how do you feel now? I think we're corn and carrots and pieces of meat in a very bitter bile scattered all over the face of the earth, unable to get along. Our relationship with God was not right. I counsel you to buy of me gold tried in the fire that you may be rich and white raiment, that you may be clothed, and that the shame of your nakedness do not appear, and anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. And still, most of the church does not see why what has happened has happened. Now, in part, they do, because one group will stand up and say, we are Philadelphia, and the rest of you are the way to see us. Another group will then say the same. Now, like Herbert Armstrong used to say about all these churches, how can they all be right? And how can one group stand up and point the finger at the other groups and say, we're okay, but you're not? That is scary. Because the moment you do that, you are setting yourself up as being spiritually okay and the rest of them aren't. He who thinks he stands, take heed, lest he fall. Abase yourself, and I will exalt you. Exalt yourself, and I will abase you, God says. I think it is far more imperative, far more advisable, far wiser to say, I think I'm the problem. I need to get the beam out of my own eye. Then maybe I can see clearly to get the mote out of someone else's eye. You see, it's a matter of spiritual attitude here. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Now there's some real hope there. If we are being chastened and rebuked of God right now, that means, brethren, that he loves us. Now, to me, that's exciting. He cares enough to spank me. To spank all of us. To spank the church. And we have people weeping and wailing all about us. And we weep and wail ourselves. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. Now, there's the bottom line. Go to Hebrews 12 and says the same thing. Don't group down and be discouraged by this, but all chastening is for good. Raise up the feeble arms and the weak knees. Straighten up. Straighten out. Turn to God with all your heart. 
I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and will sup with him and he with me. To him that overcomes will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame and am sat down with my father in his throne. So he gives us great hope here that even in this rebuking and chastening, if we will repent and be zealous, that he will save us. So all is not doom and gloom even for Laodicea if we find ourselves as part of that, and I think that we are. At least in attitude, we were very, very weak. We'll see a little later that he calls us weak in heart. The prophecies lay this out in great detail for us. Now, maybe not all the specific prophecies of the Old Testament are in absolute detail of the church today and are not specific prophecies of the church today, but the principles are certainly there. That we have been unfaithful, that we have been unjealous, that we have been weak, that we have not been responsive to our husbands. And therefore, since we have given attention to the world and materialism and all these things about us, God says we're unfaithful. We're spiritually whoring against him. So the principle certainly fits whether that is a very, whether it is a detailed specific prophecy of the church or not. Because human nature doesn't change. And we're going through the same problems ancient Israel did and the same problems the early New Testament church went through. And we have to be converted and repent and become zealous. Now it would not surprise me if all the details of those Old Testament prophecies eventually mesh and explain in detail what the end time church was like. God is capable of that. God is capable of seeing everything basically as it will happen and laying it out ahead of us. And he does say he will do nothing except he warns us by the prophets. Now what's the problem? Our problem is we did not pay enough attention to Matthew 5 through 7 where he talked about the relationship between God and man and man and man. We did not pay enough attention to Revelation 3, which we just read, and we became weak. We all went to sleep. Now God knew us well enough, and he knew Satan well enough, that he could confidently predict way ahead of time that all would slumber and sleep. And it did happen. I don't think anyone can claim I stayed awake through this whole thing. Can you? I can't. We did not pay enough attention to this. We also did not pay enough attention to Jeremiah 23. We did not pay enough attention to Ezekiel 34 and Malachi 1 as a ministry and as a people. And therefore, God says, I will destroy the shepherds and I will raise their sheep from them. That's what's happening today. We had better pay close heed, for more is about to happen. He laid it all out there for us in the prophets, right after the law. He knew our relationship would fail because we were weak, just as ancient Israel was weak. And therefore, he would have to punish us 
But he didn't do it without laying it out for us in the prophets, did he? And he didn't do it without laying it out in the New Testament, where Peter warned us that in the end time there would be a falling away, where Paul warned us of the same thing. And that in the end time there in Timothy, he talked about how perilous times would come, men being lovers of their own selves. All they were doing was repeating the Old Testament prophecies and applying them to the New Testament church. And now we are doubly blessed and doubly responsible because we have both the testimony of the Old Testament prophets and the New Testament prophets that this would occur. We are without excuse. Christ linked the law and the prophets very tightly together as we saw in Matthew 7 and in Matthew 22. Yes, the law would be all we needed if we followed Deuteronomy in Matthew. That's all we'd need. But God knew the relationships would get all fouled up and that we wouldn't keep all those letters of the law and the spirit of the law properly. Therefore, he sent the prophets to tell us that and what to do about it. We must have the prophets because Israel never has truly followed God without murmuring, complaining, and backsliding. Again, the prophecies tell us what is wrong, why, and what to do about it. How to fix the relationships. And they also give the final outcome either way, whether we respond properly or whether we do not. Therefore, the prophets are inexorably linked with the law in preparing the bride. They tell us what the bride did not do. They tell us what the bride needs to do. So we have to have the law and the prophets because our relationships all hang on those two sections of the Bible. What do the prophecies tell us? They tell us the bride is not ready. They tell us God is still angry. The book of Lamentations says, I did this to you. See, Revelation 3 is drawn from that. Maybe not directly, but the principle is. I did this to you. I will spew you out. I will send a fire in Jerusalem. I will scatter you and destroy you. I will destroy your mother, as he says in Hosea. Now look about you. Look about the church. Is this not so? Is this not what is occurring? How many people are paying heed to these prophets today? It's not being preached much. It really isn't. We have a an effeminate, cowed, fearful ministry in the greater church of God today. Many of whom are more concerned about their paychecks than in warning God's people about what is wrong with their relationship with God and with man. And it's sad. It's deplorable. It's also prophesied. And it says back there, and I think it's around Ezekiel 14 or so, that they would prophesy to the people, peace, peace, when there is no peace. They say, you haven't divined correctly. You don't lift up your voice like a trumpet and tell my people their sins. And the ministry is afraid to do that today. They're afraid they'll quit tithing, afraid they'll quit coming, whatever. Harold Smith does in global. A few others perhaps do. 
I've seen a few writers in the journal who are beginning to wake up to what is going on in the church and say so. One from United, I think. There was another one from Germany. I read something where he indicated that God is doing this because we've sinned. But most of the people are paying attention to these prophets and what's wrong with the relationship. Therefore, they don't know what's going on. Now let's go back to the book of Hosea. It looks like I'm going to run out of time and drop you again. But I wanted to lay this background to understand that these prophecies are tied very directly with the law to the New Testament church. And that there's no denying or getting around that and that we had better be paying heed. And the fact that we did not pay heed is why we find ourselves where we are today. And it's not over. It's not over. The separation, the division, is intensifying. And people are not getting along as well as they were six months ago, here and there in the church. It's scary. So now is the time to pay heed to what God says back here, what's coming next, and what the solutions to it all are. Now let's go to Hosea for a moment. And I want to lay a little bit, little bit more background here. <clears throat> Hosea means the same as Joshua, that is, Savior or Yahweh saves. And God calls things what they are. So Hosea is going to point out what the problems in Israel were and what the problems in spiritual Israel are today and point out also that Jesus Christ is going to see us through it all. Now, Hosea prophesied for a long time. Some of these prophets were very short in their prophecy, but his stressed out over many years because he had to marry a Horish woman. He had to have several children by her. <clears throat> and this was to depict the Horishness of Israel. The first child born was called Jezreel, which means scattered seed of God. That's the first message. I am going to scatter you. And then he talks about avenging the blood of Jezreel upon the house of Jehu and cause to cease the kingdom of the house of Israel. That ties, I think, very clearly with Matthew 24, too, where he uses the symbology of the temple and how not one stone will be left upon another. And there are many such analogies in the Bible. Jezreel also means dispersion. And then a daughter came in verse 6, and it's called Loruama, which means unloved, despised. God despises the way we are right now. And he says, I'll have no more mercy on the house of Israel. And we have to apply that to the church. I will have mercy on the house of Judah. Now Judah also sinned, and in chapter 5 we find that later on Judah falls. Uh, Then verse 9, he had another son by this woman named uh, Lorami, which means not my people, for you are not my people and I will not be your God. So we find ourselves with God having turned his back on us. That's essentially the position we are in right now. There's a scripture, I think, in Isaiah, which says directly, I've turned away from you until you repent. In other words, I can't abide to look at you the way you are. Now this goes 
contrary to the teachings of sweet Jesus. But so many in the church of God today are turning to. A Protestant attitude of Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Now Jesus does love us, there's no doubt about that. But we need to understand that he doesn't love the way we are. He can't abide it, and therefore he is spewing us out of his mouth. What is the beginning of wisdom? Hearing God without awe, respect, and maybe just a little bit and maybe a whole lot of absolute terror of God, we can't begin to understand him and his love. Now David was beloved of God, called darling, that's what his name means. And he was a man after God's own heart. But remember the time when he tried to move the ark when they found it? And Uzzah reached out and studied it? David backed off fast. He left it there in someone's house and said, I'm not moving that thing. How can I move it? If you're going to kill everybody, I send out there to move it. He said to God. And it was months later before he summoned the courage to again move the ark. Now, why did God do that? Uzzah meant well, didn't he? He was just trying to study it. He didn't want to fall. God was saying, I will take care of my ark, as it's not your job. And he zotted him dead right on the spot. And he never lived again that I know of for the physical human being. End of life. End of marriage. End of relationship with children. Sounds cruel, harsh, and terrible, doesn't it? But God wanted them to know that they were to fear him and everything about him. And with the proper fear, then comes love. That's the beginning of wisdom. Now, he's going to teach us to fear. We sat there in worldwide, and we didn't really fear. <clears throat> he goes on down to say, verse 11, Then shall the children of Judah and the children of Israel be gathered together and appoint themselves one head, and they shall come up out of the land. Now, we'll see that this ties in together very well with the work of the witnesses at the end of the age. They're commissioned to rebuild the church in Haggai and in Zechariah. So it's a spiritual gathering together. God will later on take it to a physical safety, but the spiritual gathering ahead of time is very much paramount. And that's what I meant when I said last time that God is going to gather the church together. Before we're done with this series, God willing, we will see that very clearly. They will appoint themselves one head. They will begin to look and understand that they are to look to the leadership that God is providing wherever that leadership shows up. And that if we are in the right spiritual mental state and mental and emotional state, we will recognize, ultimately, where God is working to rebuild his church. We'll recognize the leaders that God has provided as time goes on. It will become very apparent. That is, if we have the right attitudes. Now, if we're still in worldwide or we're out here in our living room and we're not paying any attention to what's going on and we're slowly losing the truth, bit by bit by bit, doctrine by doctrine, maybe we won't and maybe we'll go into tribulation.
Chapter 2. Say to your brethren, Ami and to your sisters, Ruama, plead with your mother, plead, for she is not my wife, neither am I her husband. Now we are prospective brides of Christ. But he says, the way you are right now, I don't recognize you. I wouldn't marry you for anything. Therefore, repent. And if you overcome and grow, as Revelation 3 says, then will I grant to sit with you before my Father on his throne. But repentance has to come first. See, this is all about relationships. Our relationship to Jesus Christ. Now, let's tie this together with Ezekiel. Go back to Ezekiel. Let's see, how's my time doing? Terrible. Ezekiel 16. <coughs> well, let me pick it up. No, no, let's, let's, let's just go on with 16. Again, the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, cause Jerusalem to know her abominations. This is never popular. We don't like to be told our abominations. But brethren, we're in a mess. We're in a scattered, uh, sometimes antagonistic, pugilistic approach to one another in the church. Scattered all about. People are confused. They don't know where to go. They don't know what to do. So we need to know what our abominations are so we can get past them. And say, thus says the Lord God to Jerusalem, Your birth and the nativity is is on the land of Canaan. Your father was an Amorite and your mother a Hittite. Now, is that strictly true? No. Not as far as I know. Their father and their mother were Abraham and Sarah, through Isaac and Jacob. But I think what God is figuratively saying here is, Abraham and Sarah dwelt in the land of the Amorites, the Hittites, the Canaanites, and you took on the look of those people. You don't look like Abraham and Sarah. You look like you came out of Canaan. And God looks at us today and says, you look like Babylon. I don't know your mother. She's not my, she's not my wife. I don't know that woman. I was a little displeased with Worldwide, he says in Zechariah 1, I think. But when the heathen came in, I became very angry. And even though we came out of that, we were still pretty much asleep at the switch. In some cases, we just simply merely changed organizations and went right back to sleep. And as for thy nativity, in the late day you were born, your navel was not cut, neither were you washed in water to supple you, you were not salted at all, nor swaddled at all. Then I pitied you to do any of these to you, to have compassion on you, but you were cast out into the open field of the loathing of your person in the day that you were born. Well, Israel really began to expand once they got past Jacob and went into Egypt. Only, what, 70 souls went down into Egypt. 430 years later, there were millions of them. God says, you were just laid out there in the fields of Egypt. Nobody paid any attention to you. You became slaves. You were just like the Egyptians. You even had to be told who I was as God. What is this God and what is his name? Remember that? I think it's in Exodus 12, somewhere right in there. Who is this God? 
They were just Canaanitish and Egyptian. When I passed by you and saw you polluted in your own blood, I said to you when you were in your blood, live, please, live. Don't be like this. And he's saying that to us today. As a bride, we have a ways to go. <clears throat> live. I've called you to multiply as the bud of the field, and you've increased and waxed great. You've come to excellent ornaments. Your breasts are fashioned. Your hair is grown. In other words, you're a full-grown woman now, but you were naked and bare. <clears throat> when I passed by, it was a time of love, and I covered your nakedness. We were baptized. We... Oh God, I will live for you. I will bring every thought into the captivity of Christ. I will work hard at being like you are so that I can be a responsive bride to you someday. And we fell asleep at the switch. I washed you with water. I thoroughly washed away your blood from you and I anointed you with oil. We were baptized and had hands laid on us. I clothed you with broidered work and shod you with badger skin. I girded you about with fine linen and I covered you with silk. Put jewels and earrings on us. Decked us out. He gave us good food, spiritually speaking, under Herbert Armstrong. You were exceeding beautiful and prosper into a kingdom. Doesn't this, this may not be a direct, absolute prophecy of the New Testament church, but don't the principles fit? You're renowned went forth among the heathen for your beauty, for it was perfect through my comeliness. And we were thought well of by a lot of people out in the world. Now, that's, that's a danger signal. But they saw what was happening. They saw a give and a get message. They saw a gospel of the good news of the kingdom of God. But alas, we trusted in our beauty. Played the harlot. Everyone that passed by, his it was. On and on, he uses an indictment here against us and says, Whoa, whoa, about all of our abominations, how we've left things out of the truth. Now, how have we done this? I said something a while back in a sermon, I guess two or three months ago, about how God was spanking the church as per Hebrews 12, as per uh, the Proverbs, where it says, If you beat the child with a rod, he will not die. Not on the head, on the behind. <laughs> with a right-sized rock. But there are lots of scriptures in the Bible that talk about spanking the child, not just removing him from the TV room or the Nintendo, but actually applying physical force to his behind. There is a warning, brethren, in Revelation, right at the end, do not take from nor add to this book. But when we say the psychologists always all say you should remove privileges, don't count on their behind. What are we doing if we say that? We are just, it's as if we were taking a knife and cutting those scriptures right out of the Bible and throwing them away. What have we done? We've against God. We have denied, we have spurned His instruction. In that matter, it is the Bible. We have hoard after the psychologists of this world if we deny that. One small little example. There are thousands of things that if we're not careful, we'll listen. What about humanism? 
We buy that one more than we think sometimes. But animals are just as good as people. Don't kill animals. What did we just read here? God said, I made your shoes out of badger skin. Not even a clean animal. Now, how many badgers do you think had to be killed to provide shoes for millions of people? How many badgers had to be killed to actually decorate the, the uh, um, I'm trying to say temple's the wrong word, uh, in the wilderness? What about when it says in the clean and unclean laws that we can eat these beasts that have a cloven hood and chew the cut. And yet today, the animals' rights activists say, don't you dare kill a deer or an elk. But in the clean and unclean list, it recognizes the roe, the deer, the mountain goat. And it says, they shall be for food for you. But if you listen to enough of these TV programs, even on the Discovery Channel, they will convince you that this should not be done. You know what they're doing right now in New York State, or trying to do, based on an article I read in Reader's Digest, I think, last month? They've got deer now that are encroaching upon man, bringing diseases. They are running out in front of cars. People are being killed. Thousands of accidents per year. And the solution? We will spend thousands of dollars per deer and we will sterilize them twice a year with darts so that they don't multiply. And if you do happen to get hold of one of these deer that have been sterilized, we'll have a warning tag on the deer that says, don't eat this meat, you could become sterile. Now is that a solution? Here again, what they're doing is teaching us that animals are as good as we are. When God said no, you are my children and heirs of my kingdom. These animals are there for your pleasure, for your food, for your clothing, for your decoration, for whatever. But we're buying what the world says. That is hurling away from God. Now there have been abuses where they nearly killed all the buffalo in the United States and some of those things are pointed at. But that's not the problem today. they got so many deer in New York they don't know what to do. And they're coming up with a really stupid anti-God solution. Do you buy into this stuff? <clears throat> there are dozens of attitudes and approaches by this world's people and psychologists and by Princeton professors about killing our children when they're a month old if we don't like them. Maybe that's oversimplifying if they're defective. But who determines defective? We're going to buy that one? No, that one's too horrible. You're not going to buy that. But some of these other things you buy, ignore it. Cutting right out of the Bible things that God has says we can or cannot or should do. And bowing to the minds of this world. Spiritual whoredom can take so many, many forms. And I just gave you a couple of little examples. But we need to be examining our attitudes for all that is being said and done around us to see if we are complying with God because he is very, very unhappy. Now, I wanted to get into the contrast of this, and I do not have time. I'm already over time. And I didn't want to leave you on this down note, 
But in some ways, maybe it's good we think seriously about some of the things we accept from this world and compare with what the Bible so clearly tells us on so many subjects and figure out, am I complying with that or am I not? So we're talking here about a carnal, rebellious, unjealous, unresponsible woman, the church. And I was going to go to Proverbs 31 and Ephesians 5 to show that the marriage relationship in Ephesians 5 is speaking of Christ and the church. That's what it's all about. And when he says that the relationship is not right, it is not good, in Ezekiel 16 and Hosea 1 and so forth, we had better pay heed to that and do what we can to fix the problem, to fix the relationship. That's the purpose on this Hang the law and the prophets, these relationships. Proverbs 31. I'm, I started a little late. I'm going to go back very quickly. I'd like to end this at least on a positive note. Let's go back to Proverbs 31. I won't take a lot of time to expound. And you already know it. And there have been sermons preached back here about human marriages and relationships. But let's see if the principles don't apply to the church. The words of King Lemuel. Let's start in, in verse 1 of Proverbs 31. That his mother taught him. <clears throat> he said, It's not for kings, O Lemuel, verse 4, for kings to drink wine, for princes strong drink, lest they drink and forget the law and pervert the judgment of any of the afflicted, or of all the sons of affliction. Now we're leading down to talking about the virtuous woman in verse 10. But how does this apply? Well, you're not supposed to, if you're in the ministry or in leadership position, misuse these things but now notice something he says in verse 6 he says give strong drink to him that is ready to perish and wine to those that be of heavy hearts let him drink and forget his poverty and remember his misery no more so there's a time not to drink because it might pervert judgment and yet when somebody is down and out and about to die or perish give them some strong drink or some wine maybe it will revive them a bit well, how can we apply that spiritually? Wine, strong drink, can be compared to doctrine in the New Testament. I think that becomes very clear, and we don't have time to go to it. You've seen it before. When the church people are about to perish, give them strong teaching. Give them strong drink. That's what they need to jolt them awake. To help, help them survive. Open your mouth. See, it has to do with, with speaking. Open your mouth for the dumb and the cause of all such as are appointed to destruction. Open your mouth. Judge righteously and plead the cause of the poor and needy. Then he goes into a virtuous woman. See, here we are having been an unvirtuous woman, as we've seen very clearly. And we need some strong drink here. It just seems like verse 10 changes the subject. But the principle certainly applies that we need something strong to wake us up and cause us to be the kind of woman Christ wants. Not the one he describes in Ezekiel 16. But this one, her price is far above rubies. The heart of her husband is safely trust in her so that he shall have no need of spoil. Here's the, here's the bride Christ is looking for. Here's the responsive woman. She will do him good and not evil all the days of her life. He won't look down here at his bride and say, Boy, oh, how can I claim her? 
This is the woman we need to be. She seeks wool and flax and works willingly with her hands. Of a ready mind, the New Testament says. Same thing. <clears throat> she brings, she's like the merchant. She brings her food from afar. She rises while it is yet night and gives meat to her household and a portion to her maidens. The ministry needs to search far and wide for answers to find the right spiritual food. She considers a field and buys it or takes it. With the fruit of her hand, she plants a vineyard. So the church, the organization, the body, the ministry should be helping plant the vineyard of God, the church of God. She girds her loins with strength and strengthens her arms. She doesn't go about this weekly. I mean, I mean every week she does, but I, not weekly, but with strength. She perceives that her merchandise is good, her candle. There's, there's your analogy there of the church being the candle, the light. Goes not out by night. She's working day and night to do this. There's an outreach, verse 20. She stretches out her hand to the poor, yet she forced, reaches forth her hands to the needy. <clears throat> she is concerned about people everywhere. The true church is not afraid of the snow for her household, for her household are clothed with double garments, my margin says. She sees trouble coming. She prepares herself both spiritually, most importantly, and secondarily, physically. Her husband is known in the gates when he sits among the elders of the land. Can, is Christ known through us? Can people look at us and see Jesus Christ? That's the kind of bride he's looking for. Does our light shine on him? She makes fine linen and sells it and delivers girdles to the merchants. She's producing something. <clears throat> Strength and honor are, are her clothing and she shall rejoice in time to come. The fruits of her labors will come later. Now there's some peace, there's some uh, good and a good feeling about doing what's right if we do it, but our real reward is later. She opens her mouth with wisdom and in her tongue is the law of kindness. Isn't that what we suffered before? The ministry was oppressive and overlords to a great degree. But if the bride is right, there will be wisdom and kindness. She looks well to the ways of her household and eats not the bread of idleness. She's busy taking care of the family. Her children rise up and call her blessed. Her husband also, and he praises her. And we say this of ourselves. Many daughters have done virtuously, but you excel them all. Wouldn't it be neat to be included in the end-time temple where God says he will bring peace there in Haggai and say, we have done the best. We excel. We spiritually got it together. We came to be the bride of Christ in whom he was well pleased. Favor is deceitful and beauty is vain. We can have the favor of men, and that's deceitful and dangerous. We can look at ourselves and say, maybe we're getting big or we're wonderful, but that's vain, and God says he'll take vanity away from us. But a woman that fears the Lord, she shall be praised. We've got to fear him enough to act. That's what all this is about. That's what all these prophets are about. Give her of the fruit of her hands, and let her own works praise her in the gates. So God is going to reward us based on our fruits, and our works will praise us, not our own mouth. This is the bride that Jesus Christ is looking for. That's what all these prophecies are about. 
is building this kind of relationship with the Father and the Son and with each other so that Christ can look down and say, Boy, I am pleased with my bride. Come on up to meet me in the air. Take heed and be a part of the bride of Christ.